Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew 6. By way of introduction, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount here at Allgate. And to, for those of you who maybe haven't been around or haven't been keeping track with that, uh, a, little, a little bit of context so we know what we're doing. When we read the book of Matthew, you have to understand that Matthew, is, he's a smart guy, right? He's a smart, he, he was a tax collector, so he, 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 get, like, he gets numbers, he gets things. Uh, and so Matthew is writing with a specific intention in heart and mind, When he's writing, Matthew's purpose is to reveal to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah by showing them not only that He has fulfilled the Mosaic law, but that the whole concept is that He is the greater Moses. So Jesus is the greater Moses. Obviously the Jews, the person they held in the highest esteem was Moses. Yes, the one who led them out of slavery, the one who brought the law on Mount Sinai. He, he's held with great, great honour. And Matthew wants us to see in the life of Jesus that Jesus is the greater Moses, the one they've actually been waiting for, the one who the prophets promised would come, the true Messiah, And so he does that by setting up a whole series of things which link and and compare Jesus side by side to Moses. And the Sermon on the Mount is just one of those events. What the Sermon on the Mount is, 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 is Matthew or Jesus, through the words of Matthew, placing himself against Moses. Moses went up the Mount of Sinai and the people gathered on the bottom. Moses got the rules of engagement This is how we're going to do life with God because the people had said, no, 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 we don't don't want to go up the mountain. Like you speak to us, Moses. Anyone with me here, Bible readers in the place? So the people of Israel said, you go up. You got like, this is too much for us. God's too much for us. So that you, God, you speak through Moses to us. So Moses brings the law. Yes, And what's happening here in Mount Sinai is Jesus is going up the mountain and He is standing with His his disciples as Moses had the elders, but there's all the people at the bottom of the mountain and Jesus is bringing the new covenant, the new rules of engagement, which is why He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And He says that over and over and over again. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is, is bringing the, the new rules of engagement. In Him, this is what relationship with God now looks like. Before, it looked like this. Under Moses, it looked like this. But in what I've come to do, which is ultimately fulfilled on the cross, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit to the church, what I've come to do, this is now what it looks like. And as a church, we've had a look at uh, a few things. We've looked at what that means in terms of how we read the Bible. We've looked at, last week, looked at what that means in terms of ethics. And today, we're going to have a look at what that means in terms of religion. In a message we're titling, Transformed Religion. As Jesus stands on on the, the mount, He is declaring 
a transformed, a renewed religion, a new way to engage God. It's an incredible book, the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, open it up right now. We'll go to chapter 6. And we got 19 verses to read. You ready? You ready? Great. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. It's an interesting phrase we'll get to in a minute. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give, give to the needy. Uh, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Underline that, circle that, and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand, uh, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. You want to pray it with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now watch this. I'm not sure if we're going to have time to dive into this verse, but this is something you need to underline and ponder with the Lord this week. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch indeed. When you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless your word, we pray. We love you and we worship you. And we ask that you would just bring all of this uh, in, a, in a powerful, simple message that we can grasp and take home and run with, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Sermon on the Mount, as we said, it's, it's this deliberate sort of parallel with Moses 
of what Jesus is doing here in establishing himself as the Messiah and bringing the new, the new law, the new rules of engagement, the new covenant uh, theology of how we're going to approach God. So what we have to realise is that the, the Sermon on the Mount, I've heard people say, this is like the best sermon ever preached. This is so much more than a, the best sermon ever preached. This is so much more than just a good word that you hear and go, that's a good word, Jesus. All right? This is, this is life to our bones. This is Jesus saying, for if you will follow me, I want to show you the intention and the purpose of God's heart for humanity. I'm showing you God's intention from the very beginning of time that, that the law that was given on Mount Sinai was never supposed to be the way in which you engage the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But the way that you engage the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was always supposed to be what we saw in Genesis 2 in the garden, that we were called to dwell with Him in relationship, not access Him through rules of religion. I was talking to Ben earlier that it's the classic Christian cliche, isn't it? The whole, oh, I'm, I'm not religious. It's all about a relationship. And we say it, but do we know it? Because it's true. And we're going to see that in the Scripture today, that this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to get us to see that He has come for intimacy in the way that we engage with God. And that's the purpose. And that's, that's what he's on about here in this passage. And we're going to pick it up. We'll go back to verse 1. And I find it fascinating when it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Practice your righteousness. We've got to understand who Jesus is talking to here, that he is talking to the Jews. So he is assuming that they are seeking to follow God. And as he speaks, he's speaking prophetically to the church in this assumption that we want to follow God and that there will be something that flows out of that, which is, which is a practice of righteousness, which is doing stuff that's going to honour God in the way that we live our lives. And I love that phrase, be careful not to practice your righteousness. This whole idea that I've, I've, there's a way that I've made righteous and therefore there's practices that go along with that. And he goes, but don't practice them in front of other people. Be careful not to be like that because there's a different way in the kingdom that I've come to establish. And what he's about to do is he's going to set it up through three specific acts, three, three practices of religion, three uh, habits of holiness, whatever you want to call them, three things that are common, especially to his audience in this context, three things that... They all do in order to have relationship with God, in order to get to God. And those things are giving, prayer and fasting. And so he's going to use giving, prayer and fasting as examples to draw out the heart of the new kingdom. He's going to use giving, prayer and fasting to show what the old way is and to say, hang on, hang on, there's a better way, right? And he's going to draw a series of things out of that to show us how it should be done. 
Have any of you heard of uh, Pascal's Wager? Anyone heard of Pascal's Wager? Can we put that up on the screen? You see, Jesus is talking to these people who engage God in a particular way in order to have access to Him. And Pascal was a French philosopher, mathematician, theologian, physician, pretty bright guy. And he proposed uh, this equation, this simple idea that there is the existence of God, right? And so let's just say that God does exist. Now, if God exists and we choose to believe in Him, we experience infinite gain, right? If God doesn't exist and we choose to believe in Him, Pascal basically says, what have we lost? Nothing, right? If God doesn't exist and I still believe in Him, I've lost nothing at all. And he goes, but, but if, if God does exist and we choose not to believe in Him, what have we lost? Everything. And if God doesn't exist and I don't believe in Him, well, I've lost nothing either. So he, looked, he created this, effectively this equation to say uh, this whole idea of the ifs and buts of God and belief. And it's a fascinating little equation and it poses a, a really interesting um, evangelism kind of questionnaire and technique that we can use with other people when they're wrestling with the idea of, does God exist? And it can prompt really, you know, fascinating chat, hey? Like I chatted with someone the other day. Well, like, all right, well, what have you got to lose? Like, what have you got to lose, really? And it can be a great prompt, but there is a problem with this equation. Who can, who can tell me what the problem with the equation is? It depends on us. Have a look at it. Like the whole thing is about me, Yes? The whole thing is about me. It's about what I stand to gain. So when Pascal poses this idea, it's a great conversation starter. However, if a faith, if a, if a belief in God is primarily based on a philosophical idea that, well, I better, I better behave in a particular way just in case this deity actually exists so I can have favour with Him, fundamentally we've got it wrong because we've made, the, we've made God about me and what I can get. And we've got to understand that this is very much kind of how the Jewish people were thinking at the day. It's like, okay, there's a God, but it's about I need to be in right standing with Him because I, I don't want to suffer this or I don't want to suffer that. I don't want to get things wrong. And so I'm going to behave a particular way in order to in order to be okay with God. And what we've got to understand is that this way of viewing God, when we view God through the lens of our own selfishness, it actually produces a distant religious activity. Who's tracking with me? A distant religious activity. No, 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 no. stay with me. We actually see this in a whole heap of contexts. Like you see this in the person who maybe bought, let's just throw a random example out there, born and raised Catholic, all right? They're born, sorry, born and baptised Catholic. It's a whole, I've met so many friends, like, oh, I'm Catholic. I had a chat with a, a mate of mine once who, um, 
He, we were talking about, I was getting baptised in my early 20s and he was like, oh, I've been baptised. Now, this guy had zero relationship with God, zero sense of wanting to serve and honour God. But in his mind, he went to church on Christmas and he went to church on and he was ticking the religious box and in his mind, that was good. But he'd missed it. And we see this in our society, right? It's this, if I do this and this, then I'll be okay with God. Then I can do all the other stuff I want to do. Fundamentally, it's about self. We also see that in the church on the person who comes every Sunday, faithfully serving, doing the work, setting up the chairs on that roster, on this roster, doing, doing, doing. And yet there's no joy. There's no love. There's no humility. What there is, is religious duty, but no devotion because it's still about me doing what I have to do to get right with God. And when we're stuck in the law, when we're stuck in the old covenant way of thinking, we can begin to have this religious mindset. And what Jesus is doing on the mountain is he's taking Pascal's, Pascal's wager. He's going, no, no, it's not about you. It's not about you doing things to get to me. It is about you responding because I have already got to you. It's about recognising that Jesus has done the work. When he says it is finished, he meant it. It is about the fact that God has pursued humanity and that in his pursuit of humanity to the point of death on a cross, he has poured out every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we are highly favoured, that we are seated with Christ on high. And because of the Gospel, therefore I respond. Do you see the difference? One is about me striving to get to Him and the other is about me saying, thank you, Lord. One is about the rules and the laws and the other is about love. This is that beautiful picture last week in our evening service we talked about marriage as an example of Christ and His church and in marriage, what do we see? If we love someone, what do we do? When they say, hey, can I have a cup of tea? You say, sure. <laughs> yes. Or a coffee. You know, you serve one another. Why do we serve one another? Because we have to, to earn their favour so that they might not yell at us or be, be upset with us. Is that why we serve one another? Come on, Allgate. <laughs> why do we serve one another? Because we love them. And because my heart longs to serve, my heart wants to honour, my heart wants to engage because I am loved. And because I am loved, I pour out love. And this is what Jesus is doing in this sermon. This is what He's doing to religion in this passage, these three religious concepts. What He's doing is saying, we've got to totally reverse it. He goes, you guys have got it all backwards. It's not about doing to get. It is about responding because you have already been given. And he then wants to point out the heart posture, the difference that you're going to see. 
this heart for holiness. And he goes, hey, here's some attributes that are common to all of these different practices. There's a few things you're going to see in a heart that has truly caught the gospel, right? A heart that has caught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to race through these quickly and then I'll make a few comments on giving prayer and fasting. But what do we see that's common to all three of these? First and foremost, a transformed religion is intentional, not inactive. Notice what Jesus says in all of these things. He begins with, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Notice he doesn't say, if you. If you give, do it this. No, no, he says, when you give. The assumption is that a heart that is caught by the gospel will will be intentionally invested in the one it loves. We will give. A heart that is caught up in Christ will give. A heart that is caught up in Christ will pray. A heart that is caught up in Christ will fast. It is a part of what happens to us when we truly have caught a revelation of Christ. We will do it. And that means it actually requires some effort on our part. Now, some of you are looking at me like, David, did you just say effort? How dare you? I'm under grace, not under law. Well, let me point you to Dallas Willard and the great omission. Who knows Dallas Willard? Some of you need to read more books. (laughs) Dallas Willard is a phenomenal author. Dallas Willard said this. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Oh, isn't it? Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. I feel like I could hang up right there. (laughs) Grace is not opposed To effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. So we have to understand something. A heart, a transformed religion, a heart caught up in the gospel of Christ is not opposed to effort. We will implement disciplines in our life, but we do them not to earn God's favour because God's favour has already been poured out upon us. And so I will put disciplines in my life. It's the difference between a God awareness, which is built upon the law, which will produce a focus on the how of religion. What do I have to do to get? But a gospel awareness built upon the sacrifice of Christ and the infilling of His Spirit will focus on a heart of religion, which just says, what can I give? Yes, It's not inactive. It is something that is intentional in what we're doing. Spiritual matters, uh, spiritual disciplines still matter to God. Number two, it is humble, not haughty. So he goes through this whole idea of uh, when you do, when you do. uh, Let's look at verse two. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets 
as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, they've received the reward. But when you give, do this. In each of them, giving, prayer, fasting, he says, when you do it, don't do it like this. Do it this way. So there's a don't and a do, which he puts next to each other. And each time after the don't, he says, don't do it like the hypocrites. Now, in my younger years, when I used to team up with my dear friend Andrew and tease his little sisters, which I don't do anymore, we had this, this moment, I'll never forget this moment, that Andrew, I think he was throwing chips at his sister while she was trying to watch a movie and she was getting frustrated and she said to him, oh, Andrew, you're such a hypocrite. And he said to her, hypocrite? He goes, do you even know what a hypocrite is? She goes, oh, No. So if you're like Tani and you don't know what a hypocrite is, a hypocrite by definition in the Greek literally means an actor on a stage. Isn't that interesting? An actor on a stage, someone who is pretending to be something that they are not. And notice when Jesus is saying this, He's saying, don't be like the hypocrites who stand in the synagogues and do this. Who's He talking about? The religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees. This is crazy. Do you realise how offensive this is? He's like, hey, don't be like the guys who spent their entire life teaching you how to engage with God. (laughs) Literally, these are the people who have taught you how to do it. He goes, don't be like them. They're hypocrites. They're actors on a stage. Their hearts are far from me. They know a whole heap of law and they know a whole heap of stuff, but their hearts aren't right with me. Don't be like them because they're doing it for what? Recognition. They're doing it for selfish gain. They're doing it so that people would know that they know their stuff. And in a society like this, in this society, the more that you were seen to be doing the right thing, the more that actually raised up your social profile, the more you climbed the ladder. And so people would do all the stuff and go above and beyond the laws. They would make extra laws on top of the law that was given at Moses just so they could be above reproach. And so in so doing, people were like, wow, look at that person. They're really zealous for God. And because they're zealous for God, we should put them on a pedestal. And in putting them on a pedestal, I'm gonna wanna be like them. And they, they go up the social rung. And Jesus is like, no, 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 they're doing it for their own selfish gain. Interaction with God, relationship with God, God's call for humanity was never so that we could obtain something or become, uh, could go up some sort of ladder and be, be looked at and glorified by people. No, it was always so that we would humbly come before Him and say, wow, look at you. Someone whose heart is transformed by the Gospels focuses on Christ, not themselves. And when we do things, when we do religious acts, when we respond to that love, it's never so that people would look upon us and go, wow, you pray with great massive words. You must be smart. Wow, you fast all of the time. You're so spiritual. You gave that much? Oh my gosh. I'm pretty sure they only live on this much and they gave that much. How amazing are they? That's never what it's about. 
It's always about so that people would see Christ and just be like, look how great Christ is. There's a, there's a humility that comes in a heart that's captivated by the gospel. Never a pride. And it's a really interesting check in our own spirits when we meet someone to say, and you spend time with them. Sometimes you meet someone and you meet them for five seconds and say, oh, they're full of pride. Actually, if you get to know them, they're incredibly humble. Get to know someone, but there's warning signs. If they're always talking about themselves and pointing to themselves, there's a problem. But if they're pointing at Jesus and talking about Jesus, I'd spend more time with them because they're pointing you in the right direction. Remember, humility is not stooping below yourself. Humility is standing at your true height in the presence of an eternal being and realising how small your greatness is. That's what humility is. Sometimes we have false humility, which is actually pride, because it's still about me. Oh, I feel like we need to talk about that for a second. When we stoop below ourselves and constantly talk down to ourselves, with other people, we're actually making it about us, drawing attention to us. That is still pride. God wants to kill that. He wants us to know, no, 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 you're in me. You are in me, which means you're a child of God, which means you have infinite value, which means you have gifts that you have, you have something to offer the world. Don't talk lowly of yourself. Just stand at your true height in the presence of a greater being and realise, wow, that is so insignificant compared to you. I'm so grateful for who you are and all that you've done. A transformed heart is humble and it's not haughty. Number three, Before we jump into these other points, the transformed heart is relational, not rigid. Notice the use of the word father in this passage over and over again. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then prayer, our father, we prayed it together. Our father, when you fast, so that your father, there's this use of the word father. Now, the word father is only used 15 times in the entire Old Testament and never in the context of prayer, in terms of God as Father, all right? In the New Testament, that word Father is used 165 times. Do you see what he's doing here? He's talking about relationship. He's saying God is not distant and far off as you have imagined, as you asked Him to be at Sinai. That's not what He wants for His people. He is Father. He wants relationship. That's what Eden's about. God connecting with humanity in the dwelling place, that we would dwell together as one. And so over and over and over again in the New Testament, it's talking about this living relationship, not a dead religion. Not this distant God's over there and I'm over here doing my thing and occasionally I'll tick a box to be all right with Him. No, it's I'm, I'm walking with Him because He is my Father and a Father wants relationship with His children. He's a good Father, a good Father who gives everything for His kids. It's relational, it's dynamic, Yeah. It's not stale and rigid and I have to do this now and this then. And we get so caught up in that sometimes in the church. If I don't do this, this and this, and especially for those of us who are 
maybe wired that way, like sort of discipline driven kind of people. Sometimes like, well, I better do this and I better do this and I better do this and I better do this. And God says, no, 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 just be with me. Just sit, I'll never forget that one of my mentors once said to me as I was like, oh, you know, talking about all the things I had to do. And he said, David, do you know what you need to do? He said, you just need to let God love you. And he said, come over here. And I walked, we walked into a church and I sat down at the foot of a cross and he said, just stay there for a while and I'll see you in an hour. The first 15 minutes were the most awkward 15 minutes of my life. Just sitting there cross-legged by myself in a church thinking, well, what am I supposed to do now? But it's still about me. What do I have to do? And eventually I realised, oh, that's what he's done. Oh, that's incredibly freeing. Wow. And the longer you sit in that place and the longer you let him love you, the let the love of Christ, the sacrifice of the living God giving everything so that we might go from death to life and an internal inheritance. I want to do things, not because I have to, but because, oh. It's relational. It's not rigid. And the last one that you're going to see, and he says this all the time, it's about an eternal reward, not human regard. And this is where sometimes we get a little funny, this idea of eternal reward. David, what are you talking about here? We don't do it for reward. We do it for Christ. Exactly. What's the reward? What's the reward? Is it a mansion in heaven? Is it it virgins in heaven? Is it, it, you know, as a different religion teaches? (laughs) Not Christians. What's the reward? And sometimes like, oh, I've got to work really hard so that I get the reward. I had a chat with someone within our Verdun campus. Oh, there's a reward coming. I'm going to strive. I'm going to wait. No, you've missed it. What's the reward? It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. What does God say to Abraham? He says, I am your shield and your very great reward. There's no greater reward than being with God. The reward is Eden, renewed. I'm getting excited. The reward is the presence of God that we are right with Him. There is no greater reward. And and every crown, Paul talks about the crown of righteousness. Guess what we're going to do with all the crowns that we get? Straight at His feet. Like, look at you. We don't walk around, you don't walk around, look how good I am. It's like playing the piano in front of Beethoven. You don't go, hey, check this out. <laughs> how good's that? You don't do that. You're like, whoa, I'm just going to listen to you, bro. Like, you're amazing. That's what the reward is. It's the presence of God. And in all of these things, if we catch the heart of the gospel, then we will receive that reward. When we die to self and say, Lord, thank you, we receive the reward of His presence. And so with that said, a couple of quick quick comments on on the giving and the prayer and the fasting. Giving, let's just quickly go through this. So giving, the word he uses here is is the Greek word, I'm gonna try my best, eleimasune. Eleimasune. And it's talking about giving to the poor. So we could 
pervert this and talk about tithes and offerings and say, let's all give our tithes and offerings. That's not what this passage is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is a heart transformed by the gospel will be a heart that is given over to the poor. When we catch the gospel, we will give to the needy. We will have a heart for the poor because that's what happened when Christ captivates us. Yes, we will. Now, a part of that, giving to the church is a good thing. It's a good thing because as a church, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the world and I think, where do we even begin? And one of the great things about being in a church community, when we do bring our tithes, which is 10%, and Jesus never said the tithe doesn't apply anymore. He said, hey, bring that and do this. The tithe, I love what Robin Carter says. He says, the tithe is a baseline to stop us from giving too much because we're so overwhelmed by the grace of God. He's like, tithes mean that we can pay our taxes and tithes mean we can put food on the table. Because otherwise, if we truly caught the gospel, we're like, here's everything, Jesus. And we're like, well, I do want you to eat, right? So the tithe is a baseline. But then we give and as, as a church, then we take that and we've had a deep conviction as a church that we need to up our giving to the poor. So we've tithed our budget, right? But on top of that, I'm so excited about this May, we're having for the first time Missions May. And we're going to spend the entire month of May preaching and teaching into cross-cultural missions, talking about the mission of God, talking about the poor, talking about the needs and how we as a church can invest and give to the needy. And at the end of May, we are going to have an offering over and above our tithe and all of it will go towards mission organisations, helping the poor, raising up our missionaries to proclaim the gospel to the people who need it. Who's excited about that? Three people. (laughs) Who's excited about that? I'm so pumped. So get ready for May. Start praying. If you're a family, start praying and start saying, God, what might you be calling me as an offering to the needy? And as a church, let's pour out that blessing that we might have that, just that joy in giving that God calls us to. Second little comment around prayer. Um, someone once asked me, they said, why, like if this, if this then is how you should pray, why don't we just pray the Lord's pray, prayer every time? Like, why do you get up there at the start of a sermon and, and pray with particular words rather than just getting up and saying, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Good question, yes? And here's the thing. What Jesus is doing, remember, is he's, he's bringing a new covenant reality. He's, he's rewriting the law. This is not another prescripted prayer that he's bringing here. It's not another, all right, I'm telling you not to do that, but you have to do this. There's two things he's doing here. You could say this is kind of like a pattern of prayer. So we begin with, with hallowing the name of God that there's this sense within that of, all right, I'm going to pray that God will have His way and then I'm going to pray for some needs and I'm going to ask for forgiveness and then I'm going to be praying that God will keep me free from temptation and then in the the rest of the Lord's Prayer that has been added through time and space, then pray again for the glorification of God. Like it's this idea of a pattern, but I I don't think that's really what He's doing either. And I've preached on this before. I think what God's doing here, He's talking about, again, it's in the context of the changed heart. So I think He's talking about a heart of prayer. 
a posture of prayer. And when you look at it this way, what do you see? You see that over half of it, five lines, is worship. One line is about me and what I need. And the rest is about, again, God being enthroned upon my life that He would be first and foremost. Do you see that? That's the heart posture of prayer. Now, the problem is in the West, we spend 99% of our time praying for my needs and 1% of the time saying, thank you, Lord. And in so doing, we've mistakenly treated God as a vending machine instead of treating Him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so the posture of prayer he's saying is, hey, worship me. Be a people who come and worship me. Put me first in your life. Take specific time out to honour and adore me. And in so doing, the other things in life will fall into place. That's the heart of prayer, that we would be a people who prioritise worship and adoration, the proclamation of His goodness. And as we do that, He already knows what we need. He already knows it and He will provide because that's His promise. Again, don't make it about us. We make it about Him. And the last comment I'll make before uh, the band can come up and we're going to move into a time of communion is around fasting. So he finishes with fasting. Now, as a church right now, we are doing uh, 40 days of prayer and fasting and we have one week to go. One week to go. I don't know if any of you have jumped on. I preached around fasting, the purpose and power of fasting at our Verdun campus back in January. And I'd encourage all of you to go and listen to that because I, th- I found that helpful in preparing it and a number of people found that helpful in hearing it. What is he saying here around, again, the heart posture of fasting? It says that when you fast, do not look sombre as as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father. So you could read that and you could say, well, hang on, why are we talking about doing a, a collective prayer and fasting if it's supposed to only be the Father who knows we're fasting? That's a great question. But again, I think the context here is the heart for humility and looking at the hypocrites. What were the leaders doing? The leaders would stand up on their pedestal and they would be look, they'd be sackcloth and ashes on them so that they looked religious. And so that people firstly would envy their religious capacity and that they would be elevated in the social hierarchy. But there's lots of other passages in Scripture around the church, which it says, encourage one another and all the more, yeah? That as a church, there is a place for us to build one another up in the fast. It's not so that we are going, oh, look how great this person is. No, it's so that together we can run the race with perseverance marked out for us. And that when when we choose to say, let's fast and let's pray and let's engage God because of what He's done for us, instead of us uh, ignoring that and saying, well, we're not allowed to talk about it, and then finding people really struggling or going through some stuff, thinking, well, we can't talk about that because 
X, Y, and Z. All you're doing is adding another religious thing on top of it. But to actually build one another up and encourage one another, making it about Christ, not about us, is a good thing to do. Yes? And it's the same, like, to just backtrack a bit with prayer, when it says, go into your room, close the door and pray so that only your Father will see. Some people say then go, well, we shouldn't have public prayer. Well, go to first century Jerusalem. There's not really houses that have single rooms that you could go into and pray by yourself. Have you thought about that? They all slept in the one room. Like, dive back to the Jewish context Their houses weren't like our houses. So what's he saying? Is he against public prayer? Of course not. What he's saying is, again, don't make it about yourself. Don't pray so that people look at you. No, together encourage one another in prayer. Build one another up in prayer as we declare the glory of God and champion one another to run forward. Yeah? There's a few precursors, like just... Simple thoughts that we we can bring. But when it comes to fasting, we got to understand that fasting is, fasting, Romans 8 talks about the mind governed by the flesh or the spirit. Fasting is a tool by which we train our mind to be governed by the spirit, not the flesh. Fasting is a gift from God to the church so that when temptation comes, we wouldn't just give in to the desires of the flesh because our minds have learned to be governed by the Spirit. As I subject myself to fasting and I learn to say no to the simple things of the flesh like hunger, chocolate, sugar, coffee, when that desire comes, in the simple thing of saying no to that, when a different temptation comes, the Lord has taught me through fasting to say, no, nah, I'm not going to buy into that desire of the flesh because my mind is not mastered by that. My mind is mastered by Christ. Are you with me? Fasting is a gift from God for our refinement that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. Fasting is not about religious duty It is not about the foods you are or are not eating. Fasting is about drawing near to the Father that He might be enthroned upon our hearts. So if over the last 33 days you've fallen off the bandwagon, get back on. Don't be like, well, I stuffed it. I'm not good enough. No, that's what the hypocrites would say. Jump back on. One week, one week to go. Jump back on. Just go, right, this week, God's grace is sufficient for me. What is it that the Lord might encourage you in this last week to say, I'm going I'm to put that thing to death this week. I'm going to choose not to engage in that for the sole purpose of seeking Christ. I'm going to choose to lay that aside that I might seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and just maybe be that little bit more conformed to His image. Yes? And if fasting reveals an idol for you, don't bring the idol back in. You don't fast idols. You give idols a funeral. You kill idols. And fasting is a great tool for us to go, oh, that thing has a bit of a stronghold on my life. I haven't done it for 
three days, seven days, 21, however many days it is, you're like, but I really want to get back into it. Ask yourself and go, has it become an idol? And if it's become an idol, kill it. Don't let it back in. Confronting? True? Oh, you all said confronting. No one said true. It is true. What a gift fasting is to actually reveal those idols in our lives. The secret things that have mastery, let's lay them to death. But here's the last thing as we close. Fasting is also to remind us of a feast. You see, when we fast, we have to understand that we are looking forward to a greater day where the things of this earth become strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace. That a day is coming when we will sit at the great table with the bridegroom and we will feast with Him for all eternity. Feasting is a spiritual discipline. It's a beautiful spirit. talks more about feasting than fasting in the Scriptures. It is good to feast. And one of those little feasts that we have as a church, as a constant reminder, is what we're going to come to now, which is communion. Where we remind ourselves, again, together, collectively, eating and drinking of all that Christ has done for us. And we take the bread, which is His body broken for us, to celebrate His sacrifice. And we take the cup, which is His blood poured out for us to celebrate the forgiveness of of our sins by the washing of His blood. And we do this in remembrance of Him because that's what a spiritual discipline is about. So as the band plays and we'll go into our final song, we're gonna finish this service on a transformed religion by having a transformed feast. The Passover feast becoming the proclamation of Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb. So why don't you stand to your feet? And we'll have those helping with communion. Just bring that table out. And as they do, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your goodness to us. Lord, thank You for this feast that we get to partake in now. Thank You, Lord, that Your body was broken for us. Your blood was poured out for us. And so, Lord, we want to take this in remembrance of You. We want to honour You. Not because we have to, but because we get to in response to all that You have done for us. Lord, we love You. We praise You. And may we live transformed lives with transformed hearts because of the transformative power of Your glorious Gospel. We ask this in Jesus' Name and all God's children said, Amen. So why don't you come as we, as we sing down the centre aisle, take of the bread and the cup and move back to your seat and we'll worship our great God together. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving.
We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.